here, I am for the practice of being baptized for the dead. Paul couldn't correct the Corinthians of all their mistakes in one letter. In fact, he couldn't correct them in, for all their mistakes in two letters. In fact, we know there was at least one more letter in between that we don't have in our Bibles because apparently God did not inspire it to be a message for the whole church. So he wrote at least three letters to the Corinthians. They were so messed up that wasn't enough to deal with all their problems. Uh, so Paul mentions one of their problems without, you know, dealing with it. He's arguing for the physical resurrection of believers based upon the physical resurrection of Christ. But apparently, and I've read several commentaries on it, the best that I can make out of this, the Corinthians were into doing so many different weird things that if somebody died and did not become a Christian, they would put him on a table. It was an ancient practice. Uh, and so I think that's what Paul's alluding to here. They put the dead guy on a table. Somebody else would lay down under the table, and they would say, "Do you uh, do you trust in Jesus alone for salvation?" And the guy under the table would speak for him, hoping that being baptized for that dead guy that would save him. Now Paul's not saying that that is a good practice. Paul's not saying that that works. What Paul is saying, though, is if you think that when a guy dies and his spirit leaves his body, because the Corinthians were not rejecting life after death, it was the resurrection they had a problem with. If you think that when a guy's spirit leaves his body, that the body is just going to rot, and then God's never going to uh, raise it from the dead, then why in the world do you get up to this dead body that has no use whatsoever anymore, and why are you baptized? Do you get baptized in the place of that guy? Uh, if that spirit has been totally, eternally separated now from that body, is never going to be joined to it again, all you've got is a mass of flesh. So in other words, what he's saying is, here you say there's no bodily resurrection, but then you treat the body of the deceased like it still has some connection to the spirit of that man. So he's not saying you're, you're doing a good job by doing that. What he is saying, though, is, you contradict yourself by engaging in that dumb practice. You're showing that you, you deep down inside, you do know that there's some some important role the physical body has to play even after physical death. Okay, uh, but it does not tell us that therefore we should go out and start being baptized for the dead. Um, Book of Hebrews in Hebrews 9:27 says it's appointed for man to die once and then comes the judgment. Okay, so you don't get a second chance because your Mormon uh, descendant got baptized in your place. Okay, um, again Matthew 5, 33, 37 about secret oaths and stuff, and this is all. Baptism for the dead all takes place in their secret occultic temple rituals and with secret oaths and that type of thing. So again, that comes into play where Jesus forbids the taking of oaths. Um, Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 to 12, uh, and Isaiah 8, verse 19, basically it, it forbids, uh, it forbids, uh, you know, occultic practices like spiritists who try to contact with the have contact with the dead. 
which is what eventually goes on in these temple services. Ser- By the way, most Mormons are oblivious to this. You're talking higher up now to get to this real occultic phase in the temple. And, uh, uh, but Isaiah 8, let me just read Isaiah 8, 19, just because it's shorter than the Deuteronomy passage. And we are running out of time. Isaiah, Verse 19. Um, and when they say to you, Seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? So we are not to communicate with the dead, uh, but in these temple rituals, that is exactly what, what, what goes on in the higher levels of Mormonism. Um, Deuteronomy 29, 29 is another passage. You might want to look at that other Deuteronomy passage, uh, chapter 18, verses 9 and 12 when you get home. But, but Deuteronomy 29, 29 is real significant when it comes to the world of the occult. It says the secret things, that's the occultic things, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. In other words, whatever God has revealed to us, cherish that and pass it on to future generations. But God has, has chosen not to give you some information, then be content with the information that you do have. Don't, you know, seek that information through other means. But in order to find gaps in your genealogies, uh, Many Mormons have actually attempted to communicate with the spirits of, of deceased loved ones through their temple rituals. Uh, polygamy. Matthew 19, verses 3 to 9, when Jesus was asked about divorce and remarriage, you know, it had gotten to the point where in Israel, if you, if a husband got tired, it was very chauvinistic, if a husband got tired of his wife, he could just issue her a certificate of divorce and then go marry somebody else. And then he could do that five or six times and still be considered a man in good standing because it was legal legal divorce and all. And uh, Jesus responded, look at verse 3 first. The Pharisees also came to testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He didn't say the eight or nine, okay? He said the two shall become one flesh. One man, one woman, for one lifetime. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He, he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Um, I don't want to go into all the implications of this. It seems to me that when you add 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that the only biblical case for divorce or remarriage would be 
if uh, your marriage partner committed adultery and would not repent, um, that would break the marriage bond, you'd be free to remarry. Or if you were married to a non-believer who refused to stay with you and left, left you, and um, if he assumed there that they would leave you and then eventually marry somebody else, then you would no longer be in bondage to them. But whatever the case, uh, there are at times innocent partners to a divorce, you know, the one who tried to make the marriage work and the other one left them for somebody else, that type of thing. Even if a person was divorced for less than biblical reasons, God is the God of a second chance. But what I'm getting at here and what Jesus is getting at is the biblical Moses made concessions because the Israelites were sinful people. But God's perfect ideal from the beginning was one man and one woman for one lifetime. Yes, God is the God of a second chance. Yes, he's the God of forgives. Yes, he's the God of the now that doesn't hold our past sins against us. But the fact of the matter is he designed marriage to be one man and one woman for one lifetime. Okay? Now when we come to Mormonism and, and the doctrine of polygamy, now granted Mormons no longer practice polygamy, but it's plastered all over their writings. And we know Joseph Smith who practiced polygamy, Brigham Young did, and they were the two biggest names in the history of Mormonism. And they're revered as the, the greatest men in the history of Mormonism. Okay? Um, but the Bible from the beginning said a man will leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife and the, the, the two shall become one flesh. Uh, you know, Joseph Smith, we have time to turn it, but 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 2 and 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 12. Do you know that Joseph Smith would not qualify, nor, nor would Muhammad for that matter? Joseph Smith would not qualify to be a pastor of a local church, to be an elder in a local church, because he was not the husband of one wife. Okay? He would not even qualify to be a deacon, because he was not the husband of one wife. Yet here he is, the founder of his own religion. Okay? Um, but let me read to you from the Book of Mormon. Jacob chapter 2 give me a minute I don't know my book of Mormon is well my Bible I'm proud to say that Jacob chapter 2 and verse 24 just hold on in the table of contents now 117 okay Jacob Chapter 2 and verse 24. This is what the Book of Mormon says. Okay? Behold, David and Solomon truly had many wives and concubines, which thing was abominable before me, saith the Lord. Let me repeat that from the Book of Mormon. Behold, David and Solomon truly had many wives and concubines, which thing was abominable before me, saith the Lord. So according to the Book of Mormon, the Lord considers polygamy, having more than one spouse, uh, an abomination. Yet, you go to the doctrines and covenants, or is it the Pearl of Great Price? Uh, doctrines and Covenants, 132, verse, uh, 
starting with verse 54. And Joseph Smith says this. His wife's name is Emma, Emma Smith. And I command mine handmaid, Emma Smith, God is speaking, supposedly. And I command mine handmaid, Emma Smith, to abide and cleave unto my servant, Joseph, Joseph Smith, and to none else. She's got to be faithful to this guy. But if she will not abide this commandment, she shall be destroyed, saith the Lord. So if Emma Smith isn't faithful to Joseph Smith, God's going to destroy him. Okay? Sounds like Joseph Smith got a prophecy whenever it was convenient for him. Okay, verse 55. But if she will not abide this commandment, then shall my servant Joseph do all things... Uh, but if, if she will not abide this commandment, then shall my servant Joseph do all things for her, even as he hath said, and I will bless him and multiply him. So you're going to bless Joseph Smith and give him an hundredfold in this world of fathers and mothers, brothers, sisters, houses and lands, wives and children, and crowns of eternal lives in the eternal world. I mean, this guy is a con artist to the max. I don't, I don't think there's ever... Those two verses put together, Doctrines and Covenants 132, verses 54 and 55, I've never seen anything so low before in my life that a guy would say, in the name of God, thus saith the Lord, and says to his wife, you better be faithful to your husband Joseph, or I'm going to destroy you. But thus saith the Lord about Joseph Smith, I'm going to bless him with many things, including many wives. Okay? Historically speaking, Joseph Smith was caught in a barn with a woman by some of his leaders. And apparently they cared more about the positions of power and the continuance of the Mormon cult. So rather than turn him in and kick him out, they decided they had to try to keep it secret. When that didn't work, uh, they decided, well, let's use it for our own sinful best interest. And Joseph Smith came out with the doctrine that all of a sudden polygamy is okay, even though it's condemned even in the Book of Mormon, not only in the teachings of the Lord Jesus himself. And so when everything's said and done, all these guys started going out and getting themselves wives. Uh, and, uh, and hence the Mormon church grew uh, rather rapidly. But here, even in the Book of Mormon, not just the Bible, is polygamy condemned. And... Uh, you know, if Mormons want to follow a man like that, this mystic, superstitious, con artist, um, with all the horrible things that he did, you ever want to read a book that gives... Very few counter-cult books are written by scholars who are ladies. Okay, most of them are written by men. Uh, Ruth Tucker, who taught for years, I don't know if she still does, taught cults and non-Christian religions at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School wrote a book, Another Gospel. And in there, in a chapter on Mormonism, she comes at it a little bit from Emma Smith's perspective and how Emma Smith, for years, refused to accept the obvious that her husband had more wives than just her. And he had, you know, they had a different, he ended up having a different house with different wives. And, um, you know, and I'm always used to looking at it from theology and in an abstract sense. But when you see what, what Joseph Smith did to his own wife, this woman who was loyal to him for all her years, uh, not only does your heart go out to Emma Smith, 
but it really shows you what kind of a low life Joseph Smith was. Now, having said that, that's not the kind of information you want to pass on to a Mormon unless, unless the food is getting cold and you want him out of the house so you can eat supper. But uh, whatever the case, uh, the Mormon doctrine of three heavens, the celestial kingdom where only devout Mormons who attain God would go there and their, their wives, the terrestrial kingdom. By the way, the polygamy, as America, it was American laws that forced them to change, have their God change his mind about polygamy. Well, right now, America laws are getting real loose about what exactly a marriage is. So, uh, and it is possible that the Mormon Church could bring polygamy, polygamy back in the near future. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a scary thing, but it is possible. Celestial kingdom, only devout Mormons who attain to godhood and their wives go there. Terrestrial kingdom, average Mormons and good people go there. Celestial kingdom, uh, where evil people go. Um, according to John 14, verses 2 to 6, Jesus brings all, he brings his believers, his followers, to be with him forever. John 3, 16, 18, there's only two possibilities, either God's wrath and condemnation because you reject Jesus as Savior, or heaven because you accept him. When the Bible talks about, when Paul says in 2 Corinthians that he was caught up to the third heaven, in the scriptures, the first heaven, you'll find passages, here's the earth, passages that talk about heaven being where the birds are and the clouds, that's the earth's atmosphere, okay? And the second heaven is the rest of the universe, okay? And the third heaven is the throne room of God. Okay? So when the Bible talks about heavens plural, it's not talking about three places for the hereafter or whatever. It's just the third throne room of God is the third heaven. That's that's all that Paul's talking about. The first heaven is the earth's atmosphere, the second heaven is the rest of the universe. And so in Genesis 1 1, in the beginning God created the heavens plural. The heavens and the earth. So it's not talking about it's going to be three different heavens and uh, some will make it to one place, some will make it to another place, and, and that type of thing. It's, it's, it's either heaven or hell. Catholics are wrong about purgatory and uh, the Mormons are wrong about these three heavens. Now, now the doctrine of heaven is a little bit complex because right now if you die, your spirit goes to be with the Lord, but... Uh, after Jesus reigns on earth for a thousand years, the, the, the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, will come out of heaven to earth, and all the redeemed will live there. So, so there are different stages of this one heaven, uh, the third heaven, the place, the throne of God, but whatever the case, it's either heaven or hell. So the Mormon doctrine on hell is also incorrect, that only Satan and demons and apostatized Mormons end up in hell. According to John 3.18, anyone who does not trust in Jesus remains under God's wrath and is condemned. Verse 36 brings up the same thing. Anybody who rejects Christ till death remains under God's wrath and, and basically goes to hell. Um, Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, anybody whose name is not recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life ends up in the lake of fire forever and ever. 
and uh, Acts 4 12, there's salvation in no other name uh, than the name of the Lord Jesus. So uh, basically, it, it, it's either heaven or hell, and the whole uh, question of, of your destiny is settled uh, uh, by the answering the question, What think ye of Christ? Uh, are you trusting in Jesus alone? The true Jesus of the Bible alone for salvation. If you're not, then you are still hellbound and in need of repentance and turning to Christ for salvation. Okay, that's all uh, uh, that I've got time for on the uh, Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. Uh, next time we come together, we'll be talking about uh, Seventh-day Adventism. Walter Martin did not classify them as a non-Christian cult. I do. And uh, we'll talk about that. Um, but we'll talk about Seventh-day Adventists, and then we'll move on to Christian Science, Unity School of Christianity, Unification Church, Reverend Williams, and Way of National Hall, Victor Paul, Werewolves, Cult, and go on from there. But, uh, but that's all I have time for. If you have a question, you can ask it now. If you want to just head out, I'll actually let you out.